The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. The podcast series is dedicated to lesser-known serial killers and acts of true crime. Yeah. I'm your host, the one, the only, the bad kitty. Wow. Come spank me, Jan. Scott Alexander, and right across from me is my co-host, the one, the only, the cock blocker herself, Tammy. Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. Look, I've been telling you I've been watching the Jamie Foxx show right now. I'm going to go to you and go. <laughs> so I was looking at her. No. And I was saying, you know, because I've got this like post nasal drip thing going on. And uh, and I'll reiterate, it's not like COVID or anything like that. I just have sinus issues. And I said, man, your mom should come over and take care of me. And she said, well, your bed's too high for her to get up onto it. I said, I'll get her a stool. It's not a problem. Then she can crawl across it like a bad kitty. And I gave her this face. I said, mm, come here, Jen. You're my bad kitty. Meow. And she said, don't ever make that face again ever. in your life. Ever. ever. <laughs> and then she said, I'm going to call my mom. She's going to come over here and spank you. I said, oh, please do. <laughs> then I'm the bad kitty. Meow. Spank me like the bad nurse you are. Knock it off. <laughs> no, people bad need to kitty. know. Bad, bad kitty. You're going to haunt my dreams forever. <laughs> All right. So today you gave me a Mr. Jerome Brudos? Yes. Is that right? This is going to be a two-parter, right? Yes, very much two-parter. All right. Jerome and Jerry Brudos. This should be pretty good because it is a fetish Friday. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Are you ready? I okay, am Okay, first ready. of all, I need to tell you because I know you probably already think with a name like Jerome, he's black. He's very white. Get the fu- uh, you know I, I've seen that I uh, yeah I worked with a guy named Terrell. It's a very black name. Very black name. This was a white ass hillbilly motherfucker. That's okay. My my pharmacy tech at the pharmacy I go to his his name is and I'm sorry if I'm outing you in any way Jericho, and I had never seen that on a person period, but let alone a big white bald guy. Do you know who Chris Jericho is? Yes. Did you know that he's also a singer? Yes, I did know that, too. I did not know he did that. I... <laughs> Isn't he a wrestler? He's a wrestler. Yeah. And I didn't even know until he was a wrestler until I'm, I'm watching YouTube videos. And uh, um, he's got a song, and his, uh, his band's called Fozzie, called uh, Judas in My Mind, or it's just Judas, something like that. And it's the most bizarre video <laughs> it is super gay I will say that And I'm at risk of Chris Jericho kicking my ass You are and he's a big guy He's a big fella I, oh, Chris can He's take a big me. feller <laughs> that, Chris can whoop my ass and I know it I won't even yeah. fucking He's pretend. like the rock Yeah, he's, he's a big tough feller Yeah he's a big tough feller but, And here's why. here's why Number one it's kind of like a little bit herky jerky on purpose Okay then it has these kind of slutty trailer park chicks in the back holding these spotlights. Okay. And then there's some clowns. <laughs> oh, shit. And for no fucking reason at all. A midget on the table? No. <laughs> oh. Worse. Two people dressed up like furries. One that's like, I think, a rabbit and one that's a wolf or something. And what? They, and they meet each other and then walk away all sad. What? 
Yeah, no, like for real. I, uh, that makes no sense. It is one of those videos that you watch and you go, what in the fuck did wow. I just see? You know, I'm calling my shrink going, we need to up that medication, dude, because... <laughs> I think I'm uh, seeing shit. <laughs> I saw something that shouldn't have even been seen. This wow. is just not right. That's bad touch for my eyes. Yeah, that's weird. Now I'm going to have to look it up. And the fucked up thing is, the song is actually really good. Is it? Yeah, you wouldn't think that... So Chris don't Jericho watch... Okay, so listen to the song first, and then watch the video, because then... Yeah. Then watch it. He's actually, he's got some... Uh, his band, Fozzy, has some... T- some good music they're, they're decent guys wow you know the, so the videos funny. are just a little peculiar wow to say the least maybe there's a reason for that maybe we don't know it yet but hey let us know chris let us know eh, maybe i'll try <laughs> to get a hold of him see if i can get him on the show yeah whatever <laughs> whatever name dropper no i'm kidding no i've never met him <laughs> oh <laughs> I've, I've never fucking met chris jericho in my life oh anyway so i do have an actually an, it's kind of a lengthy introduction because i want to get into a little bit here but um my brief my beginning of my introduction is actually pretty cool of all the serial killers we feature from the great state of oregon you know my state the good uh-huh. state um i don't think any come close to rivaling the murders committed by jerome brudos um, before I do start, though, I want to make this clear because I know we're going to have some of our uh, listeners say, wait a minute, Chica. Um, I know that he has gained some recent attention because he is one of the serial killers represented in the series Mindhunter. Um, but before that's why I decided to contact some of my friends and a few of my family members who aren't from around here. And when I mentioned his name, the vast majority of them had never heard of him. Um, those who did were actually very familiar with the TV series. So for that reason, I'm going to feature him. Um, that's one of the reasons why I chose to feature him. The other reason is because all the serial killers we have, and I wish I could see your face when I say this, or we will feature on a Fetish Friday, his case epitomizes the theme, Scott, especially since one of his monikers was literally the fetish killer. Sweet. Yes. The other two were the lust killer and the shoe fetish slayer. Yeah. Ah, I see his fetish now. He's got a shoe fetish. Kind of a little bit. Yeah. I have a Catwoman outfit fetish. He's got a shoe fetish. Okay. No, I'm digging. How do, are they even similar? They're not. Okay. Except that, you know, your mom's hot. One's right a now. fetish and one's not. <laughs> oh, they're both fetishes. Okay. Anyways, mm. his case was a bizarre one for me to research. That's for sure. Um, mostly because I had heard his name. I mean, because if you live in Oregon and if you study true crime at all, you've heard his name. Um, but mainly because um, I didn't know the precise details of his crimes. And also because I wasn't a glimmer in my father's eye when he was captured and went on trial. You know, during my research, I came across an abstract for a journal article written for the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs. Say that real fast. And I Not want to a share, chance. Yeah, and I want to share just a couple of things from it that I found interesting. In regard to a killer's underlying psychological motivation for committing murder, they are most likely related to either frustration, fear, or depression. And when you add those 
feelings to their individual interaction with factors in their environment, which can include, but are by no means limited to stress rejection and parental repression. The ego protective mechanisms everyone possesses fails with those with serial killer. Um, This will cause the individual in question to act out in violence. Sometimes a catalyst could be aggravated by circumstances that occur in their lives or people they have interacted with. Um, Taking all of this into account, the experts have been able to describe rather effectively, I might say, three types of murderers that are produced by the formula above. They are the ego disharmonious or ego dystonic. And this is the murderer of this type suffers from an inner conflict involving their ego and their conscience. The conflict results in a disassociative reaction. Um, that means they, they can't like their inner, their conflict is, is here's their outer person, you know, their ego and here's their conscious and they can't get them to meld together. So they have a dissociative reaction by lashing out at others. Then you have the psychotic. This type of murder actually has some type of mental illness that results in their complete break from reality. Not to be conf- confused with psych, let's see, psychotic, the psychopathic, okay? Because that is a totally different beast. And then you have the ego harmonious. And that killer, it's the killer that falls under this type is able to rationalize the murders they are committing and somehow makes them acceptable. Okay. Despite the three distinct types of killers, they all seem to share similar characteristics, which include helplessness, suspiciousness, self-centeredness, impotence, a desire for revenge, hypersensitivity to rejection, and irrational hatred towards others. Oh my God, Scott, these are all you. No, I'm kidding. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Number one, I'm not impotent. And number two, your mom will be able to confirm that pretty soon. <laughs> okay, I, I left, I forgot about that part, but whatever. <laughs> and irrational hatred towards others, uncontrollable emotional outbursts, an ability to tolerate any frustration and a deep need to retaliate through some sort of destruction. Okay. The serial killers that fall into the ego disharmonious type will disassociate, will disassociate themselves completely from their actions. Most have experienced some, all, or most of the following cruel and or violent parenting, parental rejection, rejection by the opposite sex. Again, Scott, I don't get rejected. Thank you very much. By the same or the opposite. By either one. Men love me and so do women. Previous (laughs) contact with the criminal justice system on some level. That's me. That's me. (laughs) Commitment to a mental institution? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not talking about that. Aberrant aberrant sexual behaviors and a loner personality. I was kidding when I said all that, but whatever. (laughs) So there are... Also similarities when it comes to their specific series of murders. These might include the victims are physically similar. The killer's relationship with their victim is either A, a minor acquaintance, or B, complete stranger. They're usually not like fully on acquainted. And C, the killer will often display some level of obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh my God. No. 
<laughs> yeah, I am OCD. I know. Um, no, I only say that because we've always said textbook. I mean, on paper, you look like you could be one. Oh, totally. <laughs> like on, on paper, when you look at just yeah. me in general, I look like I should seriously be out there raping and killing and pillaging. <laughs> or have done it. Or have done it. And in yeah. reality, it's like I'm sitting there going, um, no, <laughs> that's just that's a lot of fucking work. Too much effort. <laughs> um, the majority of serial killers tend to be Caucasian males between the ages of 25 and 35. And the majority of victims are generally female with no specific range. However, it is believed that, however, believe it or not, most victims, when you look at serial killing victims in history, are Caucasian as well. Did you know that? I did. Um, well, whatever. I tried. Um. I wanted to share some of that with you because as I went through the numerous articles, reports, and doc court documents, yes, I went through court documents, I found that Jerry Brudos fit into the serial killer box almost perfectly. Um, and so instead of presenting this case from the killer's birth through where we are today, I'm actually going to present it kind of how it unfolded with the police. Um, that being said, let's delve into the world of... Jerome Jerry Brudos, Oregon's fetish killer. Sweet. Fetish me up. Fetish you up. <laughs> Smack it up, flip it, rub it down. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, baby. Okay. Don't make me lay down the mad rhymes with the mad times. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> Sometime during the late afternoon hours on April 21st, you know, that year right before 1970, when 20 what, what year was that? That was in the late 60s. Could it be 69? <laughs> yeah. 24-year-old Sharon Wood left her work in Portland. And no, she wasn't sharing Wood. <laughs> yes, she was. Uh, she was a secretary on her way to go meet her soon-to-be ex-husband to discuss the terms of their divorce. Now, Sharon walked to where she had left her car, which is the basement level of a nearby parking garage. As she was walking towards the vehicle, she was approached by a somewhat tall, a tall, somewhat pudgy man. Okay. When she was talking with the authorities later, she said that she remembered sensing that there was someone following behind her and it made her uncomfortable. Instead of proceeding to her car, which was across the garage, she would just go back to the entrance, which was closer. Mind you, this was before cell phones. Okay, right. way before. Um, she figured it'd be in her best interest to be in an area with more people around. Because as soon as she made that decision, she felt a tap on her shoulder. She turned around to see who it was, and she came face to face with the man, and he had a pistol in his hand pointing right at her. Holy shit. Yeah, he ordered Sharon not to scream. But the whole situation was so sudden, she found herself both frightened and enraged at the same time. And a situation, in a situation like she was facing, an individual does, does one of three things. They freeze, in which case Salem will either attack them there or take them to another location, just like go. They choose flight, which means they attempt to remove themselves from the situation by running away. Or they choose fight, which is pretty self-explanatory as they do what they can to incapacitate the assailant before they get the hell out of there, right? Um, according to her claims, it only took her a split second to decide she was going to fight. She screamed as loud as she could, 
and tried to dodge away to get out of his reach. However, she underestimated his size and height. So he was able to grab her and lock and lock his arm around her neck. God damn, it's like a fucking wrestler. It's like Chris Jericho. Yeah, he's fucking this guy was a big man. Um, which is gonna come into play in a little bit. Uh, Sharon knew this man easily outweighed her by at least a hundred, if not more pounds. And she probably wouldn't be able to get away from him. Even so, she did everything she could to struggle against him while there might be somebody nearby who could hear her. She believed with every fiber in her being that if she didn't, chances were she would die that day. Something told her that this man had every intention of ending her life. Sharon continued to kick at him, hoping to injure him with her high-heeled shoes while she screamed again. She even managed to grab the gun and twist it in his hand as hard as she could. The man thought he would silence her screams by clamping his hand over her mouth. That just made her madder. She even got even more angrier, and she bit down on it hard. When Sharon did that, she said she knew that she had drawn blood, right? By this time, the tables had turned, and it was him that was trying to get away from her. But, but he wasn't successful. Since he couldn't break free, he began to struggle. He managed to snatch her by the hair and attempted to force her down on the ground. Mind you, she still had his hand in her mouth, his other hand. Yeah, she's sitting there going, oh, I don't think so, motherfucker. Yeah. You picked the wrong bitch to fuck That's right. You're you, going down. You picked the wrong secretary on non-secretary's day. <laughs> I'm going to beat your ass. He's like, oh, yeah. shit. I, yeah. <laughs> mista- ma'am, ma'am, mistakes were made. <laughs> I do apologize. You're like a pit bull. You're connected to my fucking head. Yeah. So, too late. Like too late for jaws were locked, right? <laughs> However, Sharon had no intention of letting him assault her if she had anything to do with it. So she used every ounce of her strength she could to resist him. Even with all the flailing she was doing, he managed to get a good grip of her hair and he slammed her head right into the concrete floor of the garage. Ooh, brutal. Yeah, this dazed her enough for her jaw to relax, releasing his hand. That's when she actually heard a car approaching. Um, her assailant must have heard the car as well because he gave up, grabbed the gun, grabbed the gun up off the ground. Um, where it had dropped and quickly left the scene. That's when she apparently lost consciousness. Um, The next thing she knew, the police were there because apparently someone had called them for her. And as they were asking her questions, she was able to give them a statement despite the fact that she had started to shake uncontrollably. She described her attacker as a tall man with freckles and blue eyes. Oh, my God, Scott. No. (laughs) It's me. Just kidding. It's all in 1969, me. I don't think so. You weren't even born yet. But at 69, I should have been there. Mm, yeah, with your mom. I fucking hate you. Anyways, she just knew that she had the opportunity, that if she had the opportunity to see him again, she would know exactly who he was. After questioning her, the, the, police, the police questioned others around the vicinity of the garage, and none of them could recall seeing a man that fit that description at all. It wasn't until much later that Sharon found out that the attempt to kidnap her had only frustrated him. After that encounter, he adjusted his modus operandi in terms of approaching his victims, and he was determined to be more careful. And I'm getting one of those chainmail gloves like they use on the Shark Week thing. I know, right? That way there, when she latches on, she can't break the skid. Great whites can't, can't break them. 
Neither can neither can great white secretaries. That's right. God forbid that she was like a pit bull. Damn pit bull. I need some of them pads, like when they're training the attack dogs. Yeah. Sharon was thankful that she had survived her ordeal. However, it wasn't very long before another woman wouldn't be so lucky. Um but actually you'll find out something else here in a minute. The following afternoon in Salem, a 15-year-old girl filed a complaint with the authorities. In the, com- in the complaint, she claimed she had encountered a huge man with freckles on his face. He had tried forcing her to get into a sports car, but she managed to get away from him. The two incidents were similar enough in nature that they seemed to be related to each other. However, there were no tangible leads that panned out in either one. What the, detect- what the detectives in either case didn't know, but they would soon find out, they were, there was a serial killer in their midst. Now, I'm going to put it in context for the time, okay? There was this very difficult time in our, all over the country. For example, that year, 1968, 1969. 69, dude. America was reeling over the assassination of Robert Kennedy, who was the presidential hopeful. Remember, because his, his uh, was his brother? Yeah, his brother was uh-huh. killed back in 63. Yep, yep. Okay. Then there was the Chicago 7. Now, this the Chicago 7 is actually had to look this up were seven individuals who were charged in federal court for conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intent of starting a riot at the Democratic Convention. Not to mention all the violence that was spreading across the campuses of of universities because of the the war in Vietnam, as well as the entire subculture that had begun to experiment with drugs and dabble in the occult. On top of all this upheaval around the nation, our great country was about to experience an influx of serial killers. You know, beginning of the 70s on into the 80s and 90s, right? Right. So even with all of this <laughs> violence, Oregon actually seemed to be its own oasis of sorts. We had not yet begun to experience any of the crimes other states were dealing with. Perhaps this is why it took investigators a while before they even understood what they were looking at. They were hunting a serial killer. When they finally figured that out, they still wouldn't have the experience to understand what drove him, the enormity of the urges he possessed, or the enormity of the urges he possessed. When they finally looked back over the series of events, they made a horrific discovery. The day Sharon Wood was attacked and the police were questioning her, three women from the area had already lost their lives to this large man with blue eyes and freckles on his face. Damn blue-eyed, freckled dudes. What freaks. Do you have freckles? I did when I was growing up. Oh, really? I don't anymore because I'm old. And then they faded. I have freckles. I'm old. Yes, you are, but you're a zest Actually, I'm younger than you, so bite my ass. By like three seconds. Try a year and a half. Three seconds, whatever. (laughs) I don't know how you tell time. (laughs) Anyways, Linda Slauson was working for a book company in 1968. Her job duties entailed her, you might remember this kind of book salesman, being out in the area neighborhoods, going from house to house, from one house to the other. When someone came to the door, she attempted to convince the families that they just had to have the set of encyclopedias she was trying to sell. Remember them? Oh, yes. You know what's funny about that whole story is my aunt and uncle 
to this day, still have that set of encyclopedias. Because they're fucking expensive as fuck. Yeah. Well, and when my son and I went over the a couple summers ago, I looked at my son, and my son goes, what is that? I said, oh, that on the bottom shelf? I said, that was my Google. <laughs> yep. You just don't even know. That was my Google. Um, let's see here. It was January 26th, and the 19-year-old was going from door-to-door in a Portland neighborhood. Okay, in a couple of articles and they suggest a, I read a couple of articles and they suggested she had one more house to go after the one she was walking up to however a couple of others indicated she was headed to the last house on her route that day the truth is there are only two people that truly know what really happened that night one of them's no longer around to give their version of the story and the other person's account may not be in completely reliable and jesus Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. And Santa Claus. What Santa is- Claus, he's, he sees everything. I was going to say, what does Sandy Claus have to do with that? Santa Claus sees everything with him and his creepy little elves. Isn't it Sandy Claus from Nightmare on Elm Street? Didn't they call him Sandy Claus? Oh, yeah, when they were singing about him. Like, yeah. Kidnap the Santa Claus, beat him with the cigar. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, please don't do that again. <laughs> Lock him up for 90 years, see what makes him tick. Because isn't Jack that wanted to be Santa Claus because he couldn't handle the fact that his holiday was over? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Oh, why did I do that? Okay. What everybody does know, nobody heard from, nor had they seen Linda again. Unfortunately, the company she was working for didn't have a record that could give them the authorities a clue as to what neighborhood she may have been in. No matter how many times her family called the police to get an update, there was nothing anyone could tell them. Okay? When they finally located Linda's car, a forensics team went through it. In the end, they couldn't find anything to indicate what might have happened to her either. They couldn't find any sign there had been a struggle of any kind, nor was there anything obviously missing. It was as if she had just vanished into thin air. For every Day that passed, there was nothing new, and her case grew colder and colder. Okay? Just like her body. Yeah. No, da, 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 da. No, I was just listening, I was listening to you suck over there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> On your Peter Puffer. I was going to say, thanks for telling everybody I suck. <laughs> <laughs> you neglected to tell them how I swallow. Okay, I'm traumatized now. I'm going to call <laughs> no, Justin. No more so than I am, so bite me. I'm still calling my shrink now. Whatever. You have traumatized me on more than once today. Unfortunately, the Portland PD began to get calls for other things going on around the city that required the officer's attention. One thing was apparent, whoever was responsible for Linda's disappearance had been exceptionally careful. There was no indication of their intention, no sign pointing to who they were or what happened to her. It was the following year before her case was taken off the shelf to have the dust blown off, especially when one more young woman began to disappear in the Portland metro area. Now, it was November 26, 1968, when 23-year-old Jan Whitney was headed home to spend the Thanksgiving holiday with her family. 
when her AMC Rambler. <laughs> That's an awesome car right there. Yeah. Was located. It was at a rest area in the vicinity of Albany. We, You know which one I'm talking about. It's the only one down there. The, the what what? The rest area in the vicinity of Albany. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's only that one yeah, down there. There's only there. one down there in Albany. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. The doors were locked, but she was nowhere to be found. In Peter Vronsky's book, he suggested that her car may have had some sort of mechanical failure, and that would be a valid reason for her to pull off in such a remote area where she may have accepted someone's ride for an offer. Uh, Offer for a ride, excuse me. That made no sense the way I said it. Um, remember 1968 was the height of the era when women wouldn't hesitate to thumb a ride, especially along the roads here in right. the Pacific Northwest. Um, the sad part is it also didn't take serial predators very long to come to the realization a lone female hitchhiker made for the best prey. As was the case when Linda, it was like one second Jan was there, then someone blinked and she was gone. Damn. I know. It was only around four months after that, on March 27, 1969. <laughs> ni- I couldn't get out of it. 69. Yeah. Dude. Karen Spinker, S-P-R-I-N-K-E-R. I thought say Spunker. I thought I was going to say Sprinkler. <laughs> that would be <even> better. <laughs> Whatever. She's a squirter. You're horrible. You make love to her. She goes, Doing my dance. (laughs) What? What? Doing the Scotty dance. (laughs) They can't see you, and you can't whistle. (laughs) Oh, I can't because my my mouth went dry. I was gonna say I have a hard time whistling with my plate. Um, let's see here. She just vanished, too. She was back home from college over spring break. On this particular day, she had made plans to have lunch with her mother um, at a department store. Um, the two ladies were planning on meeting up in a restaurant, and her mom sat. Her mom was seated for approximately one whole hour before she started to become concerned. It would have been, com- it would have been completely out of character for her daughter to miss that appointment. It's, in fact, it seems as if Karen had been closer to making the appointment than everyone had originally thought. And I'll get into exactly how close later. But when her car was located, it was parked in the parking garage of the store where she was made up with her mom. However, the car remained empty and she would never come back there to get it. When the authorities talked to the people who had been shopping around the area, it seems the only thing they saw that seemed out of place was a rather tall yet quite strange-looking woman hanging out around the area. There was one witness that said the person seemed kind of manly. All but of, she had big old titties. All of them said the person, the person, where the fuck, seemed to be somewhat creepy to them. Again, Scott. Oh, my God. I am not creepy. Just because I go to the high schools and go, hey, little girl, (laughs) do you want a ride? Want Wi-Fi? Do you want free Wi-Fi? Get into my (laughs) truck. (laughs) Anyways, it seemed to be somewhat creepy to them, so they avoided getting near. With descriptions like that, this this disappearance can't be related to all the others, can it? 
Okay, so the next incident occurred only four weeks after that. That's when 22-year-old Linda Salee went to the mall because she wanted to purchase a gift for her boyfriend. However, people grew concerned when she didn't show up to meet him later that night. She also never arrived at work, and they found her car simply abandoned. She, too, had managed to vanish into thin air. Now, the weird thing about this is, and I had a call to my friend, and he never returned my call, is that I'm really good friends with a guy whose last name is Salee, who's from this area, who grew up at that time. Is his name Bruce? Bruce Salee? <laughs> no, but I was like, I wanted to know if he was related to her. Um, Tommy Salee Jones? I fucking hate you. So, <laughs> was he a slee stack from Land of the Lost? I fucking hate you. When they searched the vehicle for any clues, they were they found dis- her sleeping. <laughs> they were disappointed yet again. Your dad jokes suck. <laughs> there weren't any signs that suggest there had been any, any sort of violence had occurred in or around the vehicle, nor was there any indication there had been a struggle, not even a minor one. As standard operating procedure dictates, the authorities began their investigation by looking into the boyfriend. However, they quickly found out that there wasn't anything that pointed at him being involved. Except for a penis. Just like the other three young women. They didn't have penises. Nobody came forward to say they had seen her in the days that followed her disappearance. Are you finished? Yes. Liar. (laughs) The authorities investigating the crimes questioned whether there was any connection between these three girls. A couple of them even added Linda's name into the fray. They figured out a timeline for each of the women in relation to when they were last seen to when their vehicles were discovered. Then they sat down and laid them all out. That's when they noted that in each case, the disappearance occurred closer towards the end of the month. They also noticed that all of them were young white females. However, that seemed to be everything they knew. What are you giggling about? I wasn't even giggling. I was just leaning back. Why am I always in trouble with you? I didn't say you were in trouble. I just wanted to know if there was something I should stop for. I don't. I wasn't doing anything this time. I was just leaning back, doing a little stretchy stretch, and then I get in trouble again. No, when I look over, you were adjusting your waistband, so... Well, I was going to put my hand down my pants, but that's besides the point. Continue. Slee stack. That was disturbing on so many levels. Anyways, especially since they didn't have, they didn't have any bodies. Little did they know there would surf, that those would surface sooner rather than later. I got okay. nobody. Nobody, nobody. And ain't nobody got you? And nobody's got me. Okay. In May of that year, a man decided to go fishing in the Long Tom River, which is located just south of Corvallis. Did you uh, know that? No, I did not. I was going to say, where the fuck is that? Yeah, I'm shocked you didn't. Yeah, uh, me too. I, yeah. I haven't even heard of it. Wow. Okay. When he got down, down along the river's edge, he saw something bobbing up and down as the current rushed by. He, <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> Bobbing up and down as a current rushes by. I've seen something bobbing up and down. Then I realized I was parked in the wrong area. I just need to kind of move over a few spaces, give him some privacy. You're so dumb. He quickly discovered that he was looking at the remains of a human. He rushed to find a phone so he could call the police. 
When law enforcement arrived on the scene, they realized there was a reason the body was just bobbing up and down in the current instead of floating along with it, right? The woman was bound in some fashion to the transmission box of a vehicle in an effort to weigh it down. The coroner's team had a very difficult time trying to get it to shore. As soon as they were able to get the body up onto the shore, they were able to see the obvious proof that indicated she had been murdered. There were some amazing evidence that they might prove useful once they found a possible suspect if they ever found one. When the murder tied... the guy who's missing a transmission in his car. That's where I would start. Oh, man. My batteries are dead. So when the murderer tied the girl to the object, weighing her down using some kind of nylon rope. However, that wasn't the amazing evidence. The piece of evidence that would come... That could... Oh, that could tie a potential suspect to the this particular victim was the specific fashion in which the knot had been tied. There was... Oh, thank you. Kindly. There was a section of copper wire that had been twisted in a very specific way. By the looks of it, they, couldn't, they wouldn't be surprised to find out the person responsible had a connection to the, elect, the electrician industry himself. Okay? Now, when they severed the cord to remove the body from the automobile part, they made absolutely sure they cut it in a way that kept the knot intact, especially if they needed it to prove probable cause at a later time, right? The medical examiner told them it would prove difficult to determine precisely how she had been murdered. However, his best assumption based on the condition of her neck was she had likely been strangled to death. He also noticed there seemed to be an odd pair of punctures that had been made post-mortem. The puncture marks seemed to be circled by what appeared to be burn of some sort, and they were located on each side of her rib cage. It looked like she had been made, they had been made by a needle of some sort, and everyone around was rather perplexed by what they had found on the body. It would take the dental records to determine they had actually found the remains of Linda Salee. Okay? Now, the detectives chose to search every, even further along the river in both directions, combing through every inch. It was a couple of days later that they discovered the remains of another body. This one was bound to an object as well, and they found out it was an engine head. Look for a guy who's missing half of his car. (laughs) Right? After the corpse was brought up on shore, they saw that the rope that was used to bind her was tied the same way as the other set of remains. Uh, The ligature marks around her neck indicated she had been strangled by some type of strap, which the killer had used as a garrote. She had on the same clothes that Karen's mother said her daughter was wearing the day she went missing. Um, So that's now two of the missing women that turned up along the banks of the the Willamette, not the Willamette River. (laughs) Two, two dead bodies. Ah, 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 ah. Then the medical examiner had his team lift her to the gurney and the authorities found another interesting piece of evidence. They saw that she had on a black bra that was obviously too big for the woman. 
Her mother was later able to confirm their suspicion. No, their assumption. And whoever put it on her had stuffed it with wads of brown paper towels. During her autopsy, the medical examiner discovered with horror that her breasts were actually removed from her body. And he assumed the paper towels had been used in an effort to absorb all the blood. Damn, what the fuck? Yeah. In his book, Peter Vronsky offered another theory. He suggested the paper towels were there in an effort to make her breasts appear larger. Perhaps they were both right. However, you'll find out in a little bit. Who the fuck hates titties that much? Like, for real, man. Like, I love, love, love titties. So there's no reason you can find for cutting one off. I just... No. Okay. I mean, unless, like, you know, it's a surgical thing, like the chick has breast cancer or something to save her life, but not to sit there and go, I'm going to cut your titties. That's fucked up. Do you love titties? I, uh, boobs are fantastic, and it doesn't matter. Like, I got friends who go, I like big tits. Dude, you're an idiot. I like them all. Big ones, small ones, doesn't matter. Boobs are fucking phenomenal. I learn something more about you every day that's disturbing as all fuck. They're wonderful. If they were, if they were a snack, I would name them Pater Tits. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> when when you're cold, you can put them up underneath some good sized ones and get your hands warm. Use them as tittens. I can't go on. <laughs> No, my my son's friend, he has another friend. They nicknamed him Tater Tot. <laughs> and he literally looks like Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So when you started talking about, yeah, no. <laughs> Anyways, the authorities decided to keep searching along the banks of the river, but they didn't find anything else of interest. Truth be told, they did have the hope that they would be able to discover something that would lead them close to lead them to close the case on both Jan and Linda Slauson as well, but they didn't. Uh, With the objects the women were bound to, the perpetrator had to be a substantially strong man. If not, then to me... Oh. Let's see. You say Timmy? Strong man. If then... No, I said if not, then to me, we're definitely working together in tandem. I don't know why I said to me there. One would have to carry the bodies while the other carried the object used to weigh them down because an engine block and a fucking body together would be hella heavy. I thought you said it was just a head. I meant engine head. Well, You're yeah, right. And, and, a, and a head, it can be really light. Oh, really? Yeah, like it just depends on what it... Well, but what about a transmission 60s. box? It can be fairly light. Oh. But then we're talking like we're talking the 60s and 70s where cars were made out of mostly fucking steel, so... Yeah, everything was heavy. Yeah, I mean, fuck. The doors alone weighed, like, I don't know, like a ton. I know. I have a scar across my leg from when a door sliced into it. Yeah, man, back then you didn't need airbags and shit like that because unless your car is getting hit with a missile, (laughs) you ain't going nowhere. Military, (laughs) then um, you're pretty fucking safe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, since Karen was still in college, the first place the detectives chose to asked people some questions was around the Oregon State University area. Um, that was their first problem. Oregon State. Apparently, them going to 
the home of the beavers was a smart choice. Everybody likes a little beaver every now and then. Scott, stop it. What? I hate you. You know, the fact that you're coming between, like, all this shit right here to do that is scary to me. Wow, come here, kitty, kitty, kitty. No, dude. Don't ever do that anymore. <laughs> Did you just, like, stroke your thing right here? Oh, yes. <laughs> I love the sound shield with all the holes in it and the metal and the... and the Something to grip. The foam. Egg crate. Oh, do it. Talk serial killer, damn it. <laughs> You're disgusting. Mm, Anyways, shit. when the detective started asking the students if if they knew and if they knew of anything out of the ordinary going on around campus, they found out a few of the female students had begun complaining about some strange phone calls they'd been receiving. The person on the other end of the line was a male attempting to convince them to come outside. <laughs> Okay, that's me. <laughs> I know. Come outside, little girl. Your parents See, will never I didn't find out. Say that again. I'm glad you did. Okay. Some even indicated seeing a red-haired pudgy man just hanging out on campus. Some. Wait a minute. I got some red hairs going on in my goatee, and I'm pudgy. <laughs> it's my doppelganger, but fucking before I was born. Yeah. Since nobody had ever seen him around before, they thought it was suspicious that he had suddenly shown up one day. Uh, They even found one young woman had an encounter that sounded promising. When she received the call, the man on the other end told her he was a lonely Vietnam vet who was looking for some company. So she chose to go out and and leave with him for a quick date. When they questioned her further, she told them that she was absolutely not going to go out with him again. While they were on their date, she found him to be somewhat disturbing, especially when he turned the topic to the subject of finding bodies along the river. Despite her claims about never seeing him again, he gave they gave her their number and told her that should he contact her again, she needed to let them know immediately. There was something she told them that caused him some concern, though. Half of his car was missing. No. She said the man literally asked her, quote, why she wasn't very, she wasn't afraid he might strangle her. This told the detectives that he had an aberrant curiosity. She also told, she also gave them a description of the man that was very similar to the descriptions they had gotten from others. He was rather tall. He had light colored hair and there were a lot of freckles on his face. They even realized it was also close to the description Sharon had provided them. The one who was attacked, but not, you know, that fought her way out of it. Um, they left. The pit bull. Yeah, they left with a true hope that the man would actually try to contact her again. Surprisingly enough, he did. She accepted her request to go out again in about an hour. When she hung up, she immediately contacted law enforcement. Law enforcement went to the place they agreed to meet at. Upon arrival, they saw a tall, pudgy man walk inside. They went up to him, and when they asked him his name, he replied by saying, Jerry Brudos. While they thought he might be a viable suspect he appeared to seem calm 
almost as if he were at ease. This kind of threw them off. He was either the man they were looking for, or he truly had absolutely nothing to hide. This told them two more things. He was completely innocent of committing the crime, or he was very clever and arrogant that he didn't have an ounce of remorse for his actions. That pretty much doesn't tell him jack shit. Uh, yeah. That's like, that, that, that's like say it was, that told them two things. Either this was the man that they were looking for, or it wasn't. <laughs> well, guess what? You can ask every person on the street, and they're either the one who committed the crime, or they're not. <laughs> or they're not. Yeah. That's a, uh, you got a 50-50 chance right there. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, yeah. man. What they learned didn't add up to probable cause they needed. So there was nothing for which to detain him. They had no other choice but to let him go. However, there was nothing stopping them from putting him under surveillance, right? Okay. They managed to discover where Brutus lived and that he was employed as what? An electrician? Yeah. Well, there you go. They decided it was time to look into his background. As the circumstantial evidence continued to pile up, it took them only five days to arrest Brutus and take him down to the station. Um, now, Jer- Jerome Henry Brutus was born in South Dakota on January 31st, 1939. Um, after his parents spent some time traveling around, they finally settled in Oregon Every report I could find said that after having two boys, his mother desperately wanted a daughter. For this reason, she repeatedly criticized Jerry and treated him with disdain because he was yet another boy. As he was growing up, if Brutus realized his mother truly wanted him to be a girl, it it very well may have influenced his sense of self it would probably even have influenced his childhood development. As it is, reports indicate Brutus was drawn to other women, other women who weren't like his mother. He even had a female childhood friend that sadly died. He was known to be a loner. As such, he made up a fantasy life in his mind and developed habits that caused him to have trouble with law enforcement by the time he celebrated his 17th birthday. Reports say these habits often involve the sexual fetish he had for the women's undergarments and shoes. Um, Harry Schechter, S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R, wrote in the book The Serial Killer Files, quote, exactly how Brutus became a foot fetishist is, is a mystery. One thing is certain, however, he began to manifest the obsession at a startlingly early age. That was five. When Brutus was only five years old, he was at a local dump when he found some spiked heeled shoes. It's believed this is when it all started, but it most likely wasn't because of the shoes alone. Experts think the desire was probably the extreme reaction he got out of his mother when she found him in his bedroom wearing the shoes. As soon as she walked into his room and saw them on his feet, he says she snatched them away and then she made him watch her destroy them. And she told him that under no certain terms, him doing that sort of thing was truly wicked. His mother was extremely agitated and inexplicably upset. With this reaction from her, Brutus learned that something with that pair of shoes was delectably 
yeah, delectively forbidden. More than likely, when she made it clear that those shoes were strictly off limits, it affected Brutus's perverted sexual development. When he was in kindergarten, he knew his teacher kept a pair of shoes inside her desk, and he stole them one day and got in trouble for doing so. The authors who wrote books about him implied... Now, actually, I'll be clear here. They didn't write books about him. They wrote books that featured serial killers, and he happened to be amongst them. There was only one author that actually wrote his story. Um, the authors who wrote books about him implied that as he grew up, this fetish with women's shoes increased his sexual arousal. Brutus began to secretly collect women's shoes and hid them from his mother. Later, he began to add women's undergarments to his collection, undergarments he managed to steal when he snuck into the houses around his neighborhood. When Brutus touched these undergarments, it comforted him somehow when he would become aroused, and then he would become aroused as such. I'm aroused just thinking about it. Oh, my God. Peter Vronsky wrote as well, there were mysterious and forbidden to these were mysterious and forbidden totems arousing him in him deep erotic feelings that he could not understand nor explain. Um by nineteen fifty six when Brutus was seventeen years old, his fetish began to become very dangerous. He chose to dig a home he chose to dig a home to keep his female sex slaves on a hillside. Oh, he's falling after our Pennsylvania did. Yeah, he dig dig a hole, not a home. Excuse me. I missed. I was like, that made no sense. Then he accosted a 17-year-old girl using a knife. He ordered her to take off her clothes because he wanted to take pictures of her naked body. An elderly couple caught him beating her up, and he promptly confessed to what he had done. Obviously, this type of encounter with girls wouldn't continue to satisfy his needs. Uh, Brutus served nine months as a partial outpatient at Damage Mental Hospital. Which is now closed. In Salem, yes. Um, I say partial outpatient because he was allowed to leave in order to attend school. Doctors were quickly, there quickly discovered that his sexual fantasies were the result of his hatred towards his very demanding mother. And this hatred caused him to seek revenge against all women. They also found out about the women's undergarments that he collected. One author talked about Brutus's fantasies and how they included, quote, placing kidnapped girls into freezers so he could later arrange their stiff bodies in sexually explicit poses. However, Anne Rule, the only one to write his, his story, wrote about her acquaintance, who wrote also wrote about her acquaintance with Ted Bundy, discovered that the staff at the institution didn't think he was, quote, grossly mentally ill. Then there was another author who wrote that the doctors diagnosed Brutus with borderline schizophrenia. So both, basically, one can draw their own conclusions based on what book written by what author they choose to believe, right? So some say that Brutus had what's referred to as an quote, adjustment reaction when he was going through puberty, and thus they did not consider him to be dangerous. They felt this was despite the fetish he had acquired when it came to women's shoes, their undergarments, and his desire to take new photos of them. When it came to Brutus's developing sexuality, he appeared to display an immaturity, which implied he wasn't able to deal with it normally. 
Nobody considered this to be a foundation for the violence to come. And Rule is probably is probably stated it best when she said, quote, the doctors believed that he had simply, he simply had to out, he simply had to grow up. However, as we have said ourselves in many episodes in 1956, when it came to mental instability, the experts didn't know very much. Yeah, they didn't honestly. Yeah. They thought that they knew everything, but they didn't really know jack shit. Exactly. And it's, it's really sad because. Right. Well, the, even today they don't really know a whole lot. They're just learning more. Right, but they got a better right a, a better approach. We do, we do. Thankfully, yeah, and I think that it, it helps more people than it ever possibly could back in the from the eighties on back. Yeah, so I but I do so say therefore we can't hold them to today's standards. Very few, if any, were even aware of sexual serial sexual predators and how they were developed back then. Mm-hmm. So Brutus chose to later to enter the military. However, he wasn't there very long. Depending on which author you read, he faced an early discharge for the strange delusions he was having or for his sexual obsessions, one of the two. After being discharged, he got a job as an electronics technician, and he was 22 years old in 1961 when he met a rather shy 17-year-old girl. Once again... We have different accounts from different authors. One says her name was Darcy. A second author says her name was Ralphine. And a third one states that her name was Susan. Okay? Those are drastically different motherfuckers. See, that's what mom said, too. Because I was like, wait a minute, mom. And she's like, that makes no sense. It doesn't. I got to agree with your mom, like, for real. Yeah. So for continuity purposes, I'm going to use the first name I read, which was Darcy. Okay? Every article I read stated that as far as Darcy was concerned, when Brutus wanted something, Brutus got it. Whenever she was in the house, she was to remain naked. She was also not allowed in his workshop or the attic. After they had two children, she wouldn't have sex with her husband anymore. She's like, nope, not doing it. Oh, you know what? Fuck that Darcy, man. You think that's the reason why he started killing? I would. If somebody told you you couldn't have sex anymore, Scott, I believe you would start killing. No, I wouldn't start killing, but I tell you what, and the, the, this is the thing that I don't understand with, with some people, whether it's male or female. When your partner sits there and goes, I'm not going to have sex with you anymore. I'm not, we're not ever having because I just don't want sex. They expect you not to have sex? No, no give me a fucking break, man. If you're going to cut off the pussy or the dick... Man, you gotta let your partner go out there and get a little sum sum because you have you have needs, and I I understand that, but so does everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, Darcy didn't even notice that Brutus snuck out of the house at night to sneak into the neighborhood homes to obtain the undergarments that would satisfy his fetishes. However, it seems that she had a sense that there was something odd about his character. However, when he approached her one time dressed only in women's underwear, mind you what era it was. Right. It said that she was visibly shocked and he was disappointed that she didn't seem to understand. Brutus had thought that he had found Darcy to be a woman that would bend to his will and accept everything about him. When she reacted the way he did, he felt she had disappointed him. Therefore, he kept his proclivities a secret once more and the couple never spoke of it again. See, and that's the problem. You gotta be honest about who you are. Right. But you know, back then, I'm pretty sure that everybody who was gay or 
or cross-dressing wasn't quite coming out to their spouse or their or anybody and going, hey, guess what? I like to be walking around in women's underwear. Right, exactly. So, but there's also another instance when when Darcy found a paperweight in the house. When she looked at it closer, she noticed that it was in the shape of a woman's breast. She was visibly bothered by the object, but it seems Brutus had an explanation ready for her. She didn't know what else to do but accept his excuse, and she quickly chose to forget about it. She also chose to forget about the time she walked in on him developing some pictures of naked women. Considering her multiple, her multiple reactions, it's not likely that she would be able to understand her husband's somewhat abnormal obsession. Right? Right. So I can, I can dig that. Yeah. So if you're a fan of horror movies like Scott and I are, you already know that what they often portray that they often portray men who like to wear women's clothes as the psycho killer who hates and targets women, right? Mm-hmm. This is clearly evident in the movie Psycho and Dressed to Kill. However, even back in the mid fifties and into the early sixties, the men they considered transvestites were often nonviolent individuals. Just because they chose to wear the clothes and underwear associated with women didn't mean they were going to become a rapist or a killer. Yeah, but tell them that back then. They thought yeah. if you were gay, cross-dresser, whatever, or... or you even know, bisexual. What, bisexual, or even what we consider today transgender, which then they just said, you know... Like, right. It was, uh, it was gender dysmorphia. Right. Right. And then I go, however, back then, that type of behavior was considered a sickness. So the person would more than likely have felt a sense of shame. Okay, therefore, if they became violent, this fetish of theirs would more like more than likely be a part of their ritual. Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, The desire to wear women's clothes itself is is simply a way for them to express that type of erotic desire. The actual violence they engage in is a result of an altogether different drive. Similar to what. Both Beavis and Butthead, you know, Ah, Lucas Lucas and Tool, (laughs) said about their childhood. Brutus also claimed that during his childhood, someone forced him to dress like a girl. I do have a hard time believing this since we heard about the way his mother reacted to him in women's shoes. However, even though serial killers who were actually forced into that action did not choose to become what would have been called a transvestite. What are you doing uh, that's what I thought you were doing. Oh, Yet there are some, and I believe this was the case with Brudos, that chose to be a cross-dresser <laughs> on their own and not as a result of the action of their parents. Because if his mother told him that dressing up in women's shoes was wicked, why would she force him to wear women's clothes? Because some fucked up people do shit like that. Okay. okay. I mean, I can, I can see her going, well, you know what? If you want to dress like a little girl, I'm going to make you. I can see that. Okay. I mean, she's already putting him down for not being born a girl, basically taking it out on him for something that he can't control. Right. Okay. So there's a therapist from San Francisco. Her name's Dr. Lynn Fraser, who works specifically with transgender clients, presented a rather lengthy discussion regarding this issue. The articles I read called it a phenomenon. She presented it in... She presented this discussion at a 1990 conference, but I found it online. And I want to share a section of the discussion where she talks about and explains the classification system regarding transsexualism in males. 
Um, she was hoping at the time that it would help people navigate their way through what was thought of as an unusual world. I'm going to share it exactly as she presented it and not rephrase it. Now, I also want people to understand, too, that I'm using the term transvestite because that's how it was related to back in the 60s. Okay? Since then, we do know it's transgender. Okay? I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> I just watched that movie not too long ago. You have to for Halloween. Everybody have, has to watch it. Yes, gotta watch Rocky Horror Picture. If you show. haven't watched it, you are not an American. You're a terrorist. Yeah, no, like that is for real. If you yes. haven't watched Rocky Horror Picture Show at least or once, or seen Greece at least once, then you are a terrorist. You need to move the hell out of this country. Go back to whatever fucking hellhole you're from. Yeah. I'm not even going to mention the fact that Tyra Banks had only seen uh, Greece prior to the time she did an episode of uh, Dancing with the Stars, but whatever. She needs to be deported. I know, right? (laughs) We'll find a reason, Tyra. We will find a reason. (laughs) Now, there is, um, there's five different types. There's early onset cross-gendered identity in which there is no sexual arousal associated with cross-dressing. Their gender identity is female and they appear to be androgynous, which means they are not clearly masculine, nor are they clearly feminine in their appearance. Okay. Then you have effeminate homosexuality, which is manifested by those who are talkative and uninhibited about sex. Then you have late onset transvedicism, which is cross-dressing is associated with sexuality and is triggered by specific things as the female orientation gradually dominates. Then you have cross-dressing without transsexuality. And then you have cross-dressing with a female fantasy in the form of an escape mechanism and without the desire to change gender identity. Okay? Okay. Okay. If Brutus was truly what was referred to as a transvestite in his era, then he more than likely fell into the latter classification, the cross-dressing with a female fantasy in the form of an escape mechanism. Correct. Okay. Although Dr. Frazier doesn't talk about the exact erotic nature associated with fantasy, it's clearly evident with regards to the attraction Brutus had for women's shoes and underwear. Okay. When, Trude- when Brutus started to become bolder in regards to requiring women's clothes and wearing them, he began to take advantage of, his abil- of this ability. That's when he started sneaking into the bedroom of unaware women. On one occasion, he snuck into one woman's room dressed in women's clothing. Um, once inside, he overpowered her while she was sleeping and raped her. When she reported the assault to the authorities, it couldn't be traced back to Brutus because nobody knew of his proclivity to dressing like a woman. Brutus was 28 years old when Linda Slauson knocked on his door and she was his first murder victim. However, the full scope of his world of sick fantasies wasn't known until he finally told the authorities what he had done. Um, now... Let's see here. Hang on. I'm trying to. Okay. Um, let me finish this one section and then I'll, I'm going to stop. Don't bat me in that tone. I said bat, bat, bat. You were saying like a sheep. What the hell are you doing in no, your No, I did not yard? say daddy. 
You have barnyard fantasies. <laughs> Your barnyard fantasies, maybe. Let's see. Detectives Jim Stovall and Gene Daughtry oh, had, to, had to place the known activities of Brudos up against a timeline they had of the missing women. Remember when I told you they came up with the timeline? Right. This was the first step they took when they tried to link him to the murders. This is how Ann Rule describes the process, okay? In January of 1968, Jerry Brudos lived in the same neighborhood, worked by the Young Encyclopedia sales girl. Lined up perfectly, right? Right. Brudos had indicated that he had moved to Salem in August or September of 68 and gone to work in Lebanon, Oregon. It was by the I-5 freeway where Jan Whitney had vanished in November. His current job was in Halsey, only six miles from the body sites in the Long Tom. And, of course, when Karen Sprinker had disappeared from Meyer and Frank. Remember when Meyer and Frank had to sit down restaurants? Actually, I remember Meyer and Frank because I actually worked for them as a bill collector for a little while. Did you really? I did when uh, I first moved up here. Look at you. Meyer and Frank is also the place that had Godiva chocolates way back in the day. And that has, holds a special place in my heart. Um, on March 27th, Brudos lived only blocks away from there. While talking to the authorities, Brutos made a vague reference to some sort of quote-unquote problem. They also found a significant amount of nylon rope among the items in his workshop. The authorities who first met him with him said that they had a bad feeling when it came to the vibe they got from him. However, when it comes to the law, this doesn't qualify as a significant reason for the judge to grant a warrant to search his residence. Um, they also didn't think Brutus looked as if he could carry both a body and the items said to weigh them down. Oh, my God. I need to learn how to fucking write. <laughs> Done phonics. Yeah. Um, then again, we all know how deceptive outside appearances can be. Also, Brutus wasn't known to drive or own a sports car. He did later admit... That he had sometimes borrowed one. <laughs> of course. Yeah. How else is he going to get one? Come on. Yeah. When detectives did manage to search Brutus's workshop, they found a section of rope that was tied in a knot. And the knot in the rope they found was very similar to the knots discovered tied on the women's bodies. Well, and okay. he agreed to let them take a sample. And that sounds ominous. But think about how many other people can tie that same fucking knot. It's not like that's the Brutus knot. True. It's not known as that. Although I'd like to know, and maybe we could call it that, right? <laughs> Everybody's against this poor guy. Yeah. After they left, he placed a phone call to, the, to an attorney by the name of Dale Drake. While talking to Drake, Brutus asked him if he could find out exactly why the police seemed to know, show a great deal of interest in him, his activities, and his property. That's when Drake actually told Brutus, if need be, I'll represent you in court. Okay. All right. A short time later, the detectives managed to obtain a warrant to search Brutos's car. When they did, they discovered the interior had recently been washed thoroughly. Even though it was a suspicious in nature, it still wasn't damning enough to charge him. It seemed like Brutos had an explanation ready in his back pocket as to the reason that was so. What Brutos did not have was a viable reason as to how the young girl he tried to force into the sports car was able to pick him out of a photo lineup. She clearly identified him as the man who tried to abduct her. With her identification of him, the authorities were able to prove probable cause in arresting him. They were also able to slap a weapons charge on Brutos because they found a gun in his car. 
Even though they were hoping for a stronger case, they had a few concerns. They felt that if Brutus discovered they were looking at him for the murders, he would panic and possibly flee. And one day when he was driving to Portland with Darcy in the car, law enforcement moved in and made their arrest. Uh, Wikipedia states that Brutus was arrested on May 25th, 1969, but every other report and article I found say the date was May 30th. So that's what I'm going by. When they got him down to the station and searched him, he was wearing women's underwear. After detectives read Brutus's rights, he readily agreed to let them proceed with an interrogation, even though he frequently started and stopped what he was saying. And despite his attorney advising him not to say anything, Brutus decided to confess. Well, it was more like he made the decision to crow because he sang like a fucking canary. See, he could have been walking free. Doesn't sound like they had a whole lot of fucking nothing. Yeah, probably not. But yeah, yeah I'll have to give you the rest of it later because it is fucked up. Fucked up, fucked up. I think that he, they were profiling him. I feel your pain there, Jerry. Well, I he was a bald man. There you go. See? See? They're profiling you. It's fucked up. Poor guy. He didn't have a goatee, though. Could have had a goatee. Blue may, eyes, freckles. He may have even had a Jerry curl wig. You don't know. Could have been. Could have been. <laughs> maybe so. Doubt it. But maybe so. Maybe so. You okay. Know. I'm done. All righty. So, since there's no questions, because it's a two-parter, yeah. send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on just about any place that carries blogs, because we got blogs everywhere. Uh, especially, everywhere. But Medium and uh, Crime Beat that's on Medium seems to be our best source. Uh, let's see what else. Uh <laughs> Check out the website, www.twistedbluellc.com. Click on that Amazon link. It helps out the show. It doesn't cost you a damn thing extra. It's just an awesome thing to do for us. And check out our Patreon page. Help out a brother and a sister. Oh, oh, and and help this brother out. Okay, that's disturbing. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> This show's copyrighted 2021 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will talk to you later. Bye-bye.